When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at ChampaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C., on Tuesday, May the 14th, my colleague Mark Joseph Stern and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice, all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it, and we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets. Hang Up and Listen is sponsored by Audible.com. Audible offers more than 150,000 audiobooks, all available for listening on your smartphone, tablet, and desktop. Get a free book when you sign up for a 30-day free trial at audiblepodcast.com slash hangup. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hi, this is Josh Levine, and this is Slate Sports Podcast. Hang up and listen for the week of April 21st, 2014. On this week's show, we'll talk about the opening weekend of the NBA playoffs and which five road teams stole the home court advantage from their higher-seeded opponents. We'll also be joined by the immortal Greg Wyshynski of Yahoo's hockey blog Puck Daddy to talk about the new format of the NHL playoffs and what the first week of hockey action tells us. Finally, we'll review the ESPN 30 for 30 documentary Hillsborough on the disaster 25 years ago in which 96 people were killed in the stands at an English soccer match. Joined today in Washington, D.C. by my friend and colleague Stefan Fatsis, author of the book's Word Freak and A Few Seconds of Panic, Friday sports correspondent for NPR's All Things Considered, spring break vacationer, man about town, doing the devil horns. How are you, Stefan? Excellent, Josh. How are you? I'm great. And uh, with us in New York is the host of The Gist. Ah. What? <laughs> what do you think, Stefan? What? Mm-hmm. Cool. The Gist. Mm-hmm. I like it. Yeah. The Gist. Is that your, that's your blank reaction? You like it? I like it. It came out of left field a little bit for me. I was not expecting The Gist. 
Out of left field with Mike Pesca. That would have worked, too. The gist. Congratulations, Mike. (laughs) Thank you. Four-letter name. I deserve deserve all the plaudits for that I could get. You do. Uh, How are you doing, Mike? I'm well. So this is the first time the gang's been all together for, what, three weeks? Two. All right. Three? Three. No, three. You're right. I feel like, you know, back to back women guests. Mm hmm. A lot of times with certain people, you just feel like you're just pick it right back up. You didn't really need to talk. It's just you you reclaim the old chemistry immediately. I don't feel I don't feel like we're that. You know, I feel like we're more connected now. We've all been to South (laughs) Africa. Uh huh. We have. We share that. Discussed last week. It's true. See, we're not picking up the old chemistry. You would have known. We already we already discussed that. I do feel you guys. I do. I wanted to say that my sandwiches. (laughs) <laughs> finish my sandwiches uh, we're launching Slate Plus today Stefan exciting it's Slate's uh, new membership program what do hang up and listen listeners get out of that Josh I uh, can get some ad free podcasts out of uh-huh. that with uh, your hang up and listen political fest and culture fest no ads you also get extra segments we've been doing those for the last couple of weeks we've been getting our podcast equivalent of sea legs on those uh taking reader questions uh maybe in the future we'll do a few extra special shows for members uh the main takeaway here is that everything that you know and love about slate uh the audio version and the digital ink version uh you'll still get for free but uh with membership you get a lot of extras and perks uh behind the scenes stuff articles about what's going on at Slate, maybe uh, early access to certain features, your uh, Dear Prudence and other things. You get uh, no pagination on articles, which I know is important to you, Stefan. Inline commenting. Um, you get a mug. Do you get the definition of pagination on articles? <laughs> I don't know what that means. You get the length it'll take to oh, read you don't, a story down to I the second. I don't know what the word pagination Oh, you don't know what that means. So you know how articles are broken into like page one, page two, yeah. page three? Yeah. So automatically, if you're a Slate Plus member, it's just all on the same page. You don't have to click, oh, you don't have to click single the page. single page or next page. <laughs> saves you a click. All right. Hey, that's important over, to some people. Over the course don't of your denigrate. life, could save a little bit of arthritis in the finger. <laughs> don't, don't denigrate. You'll thank us later. <laughs> so you got, there's a mug designed by Jonathan Adler. It's a very nice mug. You get uh, discounts yeah, to events. Radio. Yeah. How public radio of you. It is. Mm-hmm. So it's $5 per month, $50 per year. Um, you can find out more on Slate today. Uh, David Plotz has an explanation for all of what I've said and more. Um, you can also go to slate.com slash plus for info on subscribing. And then each of the podcasts is getting its own unique URL uh, for you to sign up. Ours is slate.com slash hangup plus. I want you to show your fidelity, your ardor for the Hang Up and Listen podcast. Don't sign up with any other podcast URL. Don't listen to any of the noise coming from any of those other podcasts. Give us your support, your love by signing up with slate.com slash hangup plus. Let's talk about the NBA playoffs. Blazers, Rockets. That game was uh, was wacky. I don't like how the games are on so late. Does that mean I'm getting old? Stefan, you no, they're just on it late. Means, it means you live in the East Coast <laughs> and have a job. That's true. <laughs> Stefan, uh, you fell asleep during the game. True or false? I wouldn't say I fell asleep. <laughs> I chose to go to bed. Okay. I was writing my afterball enough. I was tired. I'd been driving many hours on the road. Needed to go to bed. All right. Fair enough. Wow. Well, for you at twelve thirty. For you and well, other I'm not people, not an unreasonable time to go to bed. For you and other people, who didn't make it to the end. Hands wet on the wheel. <laughs> Blazers beat the Rockets one twenty-two to one twenty in overtime. There was really enough psychodrama in this game for an entire 
series. Uh, LaMarcus Aldridge for the Blazers had 46 points, 18 rebounds. Damian Lillard, was it was his first playoff game. That guy is really, really fun to watch and a great player. He scored uh, more than 30, made a big three at the end of regulation to tie it. You had the hack of Howard uh, that allowed uh, Portland to get back into it at the end of the game. I love watching Dwight Howard miss free throws. There was mm. some Lynn sanity in overtime. Like Jeremy Lynn took over briefly giving the Rockets a late lead. Yeah, he made like a three, drove in, made a bank shot, made a, another layup at the end. It was wow. awesome. Making up for his shot over the backboard, jump shot <laughs> that went over the backboard earlier in the game. Another another form of Lynn sanity. And then you had Patrick Beverly, who I just find fascinating. This guy might be my favorite NBA player. He's sort of a throwback to the 1980s when like just complete, insane aggression. He's like kind of a microscopic Bill Lambier where his entire function on the court is just to annoy everyone and he was very effective. Energetic too. Very energetic. So this is my favorite series of the week and I'm looking forward to games two through potentially seven. Um, What were your playoff thoughts, Mr. Pesca? Well, I'll be the guy that complains about the thing. If you're if you're going to complain about late starts, which isn't a unique complaint but an apt one, I must complain about game one, Nets-Raptors. Okay, Nets take a lead. Let's wait till Tuesday to play game two. That sucks. <laughs> Otherwise, I think I'm going to give a complaint. My compliment, I was watching the uh, NBA four-camera mosaic thing online with the Bulls-Wizards game, and it was cool. I like the four cameras. Whenever they so four cameras to me epitomizes the cutting edge of technology, and yet there's no number bigger than four. Well, it's good. uh, Too many higher than that. Too many will both occupy too much of your brain, and like, what are they going to focus on? One on John Wall's knees, and one on John Wall's elbows. I mean, they got all the things you want to see, right? But then, whenever they go to all right, let's throw it to the studio. Silence. Whenever they talk about a replay, nah, I think he got a hand on it. No shot of that. It seems like at the same time they're on the cutting edge of technology, the minimum wage employee who, which by the way, in the district is I think going to be quite a decent wage, but the minimum wage employee who should have been in charge of like actually showing the replay the guys are talking about or piping in the audio from the studio, just as impressing buttons. Or I got to think that it was like, well, we can't give the online viewers everything that the uh, viewers on TV get. So we got to punish them somehow if they want to watch the mosaic. But it kind of is a disincentive. Like I'd like to watch the mosaic, but they don't even, you know, let you see what's going on on replay. That's not really about basketball is no it's it's designed to be a second through fifth screen experience that you watch (laughs) along with your tnt broadcast on television i think it's It's a lot of screens (laughs) i think it's been proven though that our brains are good at digesting up to seven like seven (laughs) Uh digits in a telephone number so there is room for for expansion here that i tested that with the national championship game and that one station with uh like john legend giving commentary blew that part of my brain up (laughs) So, uh, Stephen, you watched some of the Wizards Bulls. I did. <laughs> it's about, wow. It's a lead-in. Like, thanks. A great question, Josh. Thanks. Is that a question? Stefan, talk about Wizards Bulls. Now, That's a command. Go. That's yes. not a question. Stefan, the Washington Wizards, your Washington Wizards have a one nothing lead over the Chicago Bulls. Uh, Nene had a great game. How does that make you feel? How does that make you feel? That makes Why me feel. That? That makes, Explain that. Explain that. <laughs> That makes me feel good. I wouldn't say that I'm a Washington Wizards fan, Josh, but probably you're not a Washington Wizards fan either because you're a Pelicans fan. 
because you're from New Orleans. But the Wizards are the embodiment of Washington, the Washington sports establishment. I mean, they fit perfectly in this in the city that obsesses about the performances of these teams in ways that sort of boggle the mind. There's this weird expectation among columnists that everyone should be good at all times. Uh, rebuilding seems to be something that is so ingrained in the philosophy of fans' minds that there is this passive acceptance of mediocrity. And the Wizards have been pretty damn mediocre for a long, long time. So to watch them have these two energetic, very good, energetic again, young players in Bradley Beal and John Wall and have Nene play terrifically strongly inside against Joakim Noah and against the Bulls, who are a depleted somewhat team that have been really doing well, was kind of heartwarming. I like to see the Wizards make a little run here and, and, and outperform expectations. I would argue that the columnists believe that some of the team should be good some of the time, which often is, always yeah. is not the case. Yeah. But yeah, I think they're uh, just setting themselves up for disappointment. The Bulls are probably going to win that series. Yeah. Now, if the NBA were a story, what's happened with the Pacers is destroying the story because we were supposed to get a challenger rising in the East, the thing where you go and you take it to seven games and you have to be miserable until you get over the hump. And then the season starts and the Pacers are just crushing everyone and they look just better than the heat and so the question is well they look better than the heat in the regular season there is an inevitable meetup in those eastern conference finals and then what happened to the pacers not inexplicably but it's it wasn't a huge injury and it was based on like the coach becoming terrible in the last couple weeks i mean this is one of the most uh complimented and highly regarded guys he was he went from underrated to overrated but anyway the pacers have so fallen apart in calendar year 2014, and whereas you don't want to make too much of a game one loss, it is true that the last two times that an eight beat a one, the eight went on to win the series, but sometimes we're talking about shorter series. The Pacers are terrible. The Pacers in the last couple months are a terrible team. I kind of don't understand that. I think a lot does have to do with chemistry. I think Roy Hibbard and Paul George probably hate each other. Paul George is just this mediocre player now. They probably hate each other? Yeah, it doesn't seem like they're really getting along that well. <laughs> Did you get that? Is there a Paul George, Roy Hibbert body language cam on one There's of your screens? Huge, but Roy Hibbert, because he has so much body, exudes body language. It robs us not only of this matchup, it's this team falling apart and you wonder why it happened. But the whole year, didn't it steal those stories of the, can anyone beat the Heat? And didn't it also steal the stories of, hey, it looks like the Heat are on a collision course with the Spurs? I don't know. This has been a weird NBA year because the Pacers decided to suck in the last few months. So you're saying that the Toronto Raptors can't expletive their way to the Eastern Conference Finals? <laughs> what was the expletive? I didn't see it. It was the F expletive. <laughs> the expletive. The Raptors GM said, fuck Brooklyn. And then the, Did he mean the borough so, or the so, team? I think all, or Decker. all possible or meanings. Decker. And then there was like a Toronto tabloid that referred to the uh, Nets as dinosaurs in contrast to the Raptors. And then that just doesn't... It's, isn't it, it a little yeah. sad when smaller cities that aren't usually very good Toronto at sports... Toronto is a big city. Well, they're yeah. not as big as New York. That aren't very good at sports usually insist on sort of picking this fight to try to make it look like there's a real rivalry. <laughs> Manufacturing. But the fans that were so excited, they were all waving towels, which is nice. which is the big metric for excitement. Towel speed. What color T-shirts are the fans wearing? I think it was white. white. There was a lot of white there. Is it a white out? What, what were you going to ask, Mike? Yeah, I was going to ask, where do you think Brooklyn ranks among girls' names in 2012? I have the 2012 statistics in front of me. Uh, yeah. As 14th. Yeah, it's 21st. Is that, I mean... 
You want to try it again where you guess like a really high number and then pretend to be shocked? No, that's fine. <laughs> I, mean, I think that's shockingly fine. And we're giving go. If Toronto wins this series, Toronto's going to rise up that list. All right, now we're talking a lot about the East. So where does San Antonio rank among boys' names, Mike? And can, should we talk about the Spurs and the Thunder? Yeah. Well, let me say first about Roy Hibbert. His PER in the second half of the season fell from 16.1, which already isn't that good, to 8.9, which is just abominable. He is so bad now. He is a really strange player because I think a lot of his reputation and legend was around people tuning in to watch them play against the Heat in those Eastern Conference playoffs the last couple of years. And the Heat have pursued a strategy whereby they just don't have that many big men and it's kind of, uh, you know, will allow Hibbert to get 20 and 10. And he's just not nearly as good against other teams. But now he's not good against anyone. And he's just very, he seems very sad and sullen. And the Hawks are also pursuing a particular strategy of their own where they spread the floor with five different shooters. And in that case, Hibbert is just entirely useless. And it takes away the Pacers' strength. And then it's always weird. Like you were talking about, Mike, they're the number one seed. They're allegedly the best team in the conference. And they're being dictated to by the number eight, where they can't play the way they want to play because this team that's 38 and 44 on the regular season is just making it so that, you know, Hibbert is a useless player. I would find it hard to believe that the Hawks would win. I think the Pacers will probably still make the Eastern Conference Finals. They'll figure something out. But that team is just really weird and sad. You'd think so, but they've been so bad, and they're a coherence team, right? Everything about the Pacers is, oh, what a system. And if you have this gigantic, I would argue, biggest piece, literally and figuratively, being a millstone, then why would they be good? I mean, the Hawks aren't a good basketball team, but they are a basketball team, and they are a coherent (laughs) basketball team, and the Pacers aren't. Wow, it's really weird what happened here. All right, we talked about the Houston-Portland. The other series that you cannot not watch a game would have to be Golden State and the Clippers. Mm-hmm. Um, Golden, uh, Golden State without Andrew Bogut, but they won game one. I mean, this is the most dynamic in some ways series if you just talk about the personalities and the quality of the players on either side. The watchability factor is so high in this series. Right. Those Either of those teams against anyone is going to be a fun series just because Stephen Curry, apart from Durant, I think is just the most fun player to watch. But Chris Paul's right up there, too. And Chris Paul and, and Blake, so Griffin. Blake Griffin. And But that first game, I didn't get to see as much of it as I would have liked, but just totally marred by fouls. And that's always annoying when you're watching, whether it's an NCAA tournament game or an NBA playoff game, where just the star players don't play at all because they either fouled out or they're being benched so they don't accumulate other fouls. So Griffin was barely on the court, yeah. it seemed, in that game. And then there were all those just really ugly, bizarre plays at the end. The NBA has said they should have called a foul that would have sent Chris Paul to the line near the end of the game. It was just a weird game that I think does not really say anything about how that series will go, although it's certainly to the Warriors' advantage that they're able to win one on the road. But you want both of these teams to advance. Mm -hmm. Let's make that happen. Yeah, I think sitting, I, I also think, especially in the playoffs, sitting guys with five fouls, you got to start questioning that mindset. You know, Nene played great minutes with five fouls, and let him play with five. What are you holding him back for? Okay, and you mentioned the Spurs. They, I forget whether they're the only team or just the only team in recent history that didn't have a single player play more than 30 minutes a game 
throughout the year. Some of that was due to necessity just because they had a lot of injuries. But I think it was mostly just Greg Popovich's strategy Absolutely. for resting his players. And the obituary for this team has been written really every year for the past five or six years. Um, you had Tim Duncan look a little gimpy, but then score more than 20 points, as he always does. And this is not a team that looks particularly old or creaky now. Um, you do have to kind of nurse Ginobili along and hope that he stays healthy throughout the playoffs. Same with Duncan and Parker's been hurt too. But this is not a team that looks particularly vulnerable, although the Mavericks did give them a scare in game one. But isn't that the where great coaches are become great is understanding the details about their players, about their physical abilities, about what's too much, about what's too little to keep them sharp and keep them in the game. I mean, Greg Popovich has been great about that. And we love Greg Popovich because he's also so nakedly honest about everything that he does. He's happy to bench them for a nationally televised game and risk the wrath of David Stern because he understands that the next 16 games are the ones that matter. Yeah, and if you want to say obituary written, I think after last year's finals, probably most people would think that was Mono Ginobili's last hurrah. I mean, maybe he was going to come back. If Mono Ginobili, a week after that, announced he was retiring, absolutely no one would be surprised. If all three of them have announced that they were retiring, well, I think that I think that Duncan looks so Duncan looks so pissed and dissatisfied that, you know, you'd think he could come back. And and Parker's not old. But Ginobili had a better year than last year, and I think resting was a lot of it. He actually played more minutes, but, you know, his per went up by one, if you want to call talk about that stat. His playoff PER last year was 16 and a half, and his regular season one this year was 20. So he's become a better player. Like, it's crazy. That doesn't happen. He hasn't become an enormously better player, but I think we're going to see that this guy's once again a useful cog in the wheel and then everything that Kawhi Leonard can do. And yeah, they're just an amazing team because they're just so non-amazing. You know, Phil Jackson fired everybody at the in the New York Knicks uh, coaching staff on <laughs> Monday morning and issued this statement. The time has come for change throughout the franchise as we start the journey to assess and build this team for next season and beyond. The Knicks are going to be a hallmark card. I love it. <laughs> Business strategies, business principles. I want to be. I want to be fired by Phil Jackson. Mike Woodson must be very happy right now. Sounds awesome. All right, our sponsor this week is Audible, the internet's leading provider of spoken audio entertainment. With our special offer, you can get one of Audible's more than one hundred fifty thousand titles for free. I asked for Audible recommendations on the Facebook page. Dean Tulin recommended Chris Heron's Basketball Junkie. Um, we had John Hawk on our show uh, to talk about his. A documentary on Chris Heron, who was unguarded, a, unguarded. Thank you, good memory. He was a basketball star in college. He went to BC, right, Boston College. Well, he well, started off there. Started off at BC, at, and then he went to uh, Fres Fresno State. You. Yeah, yeah. So he, great basketball player, um, had a huge number of drug problems. Um, John Hawk's documentary gets into what he's done with his life since and how he's uh, recovered. Uh, Heron is running the Boston Marathon today for charity and basketball junkie is his memoir it's unabridged on audible if you want to hear uh, about his pretty remarkable life and you can get it for free on audible with our special deal if you're in the united states you never tried audible before you can get one free audiobook if you sign up for a free 30-day trial get that audiobook in the trial by signing up at audiblepodcast.com slash hang up that's audiblepodcast.com slash hang up so the NBA playoffs have started. There's another playoffs, Stefan, that involve uh, colder 
things. Colder parts. You're shaking your head. You yeah. don't agree? There's, there are no playoffs in European soccer. No? No. Uh, Actually, okay. that's not true. In some leagues, there are. Okay. Well, moving along from that, we've got our hockey Sherpa. We've extracted him from uh, whatever cold planet he lives on during the rest of the year. It's uh, Greg Wyshynski of Yahoo's hockey blog, Puck Daddy, as well as the podcast experience, Merrick versus Wyshynski, which you can find on Sportsnet. Dot .ca and on iTunes. Greg, how are you? The planet you're looking for is Hoth. Uh, it is an ice-bound planet, and I have been fighting wampas for the last several months before the playoffs. The NHL, and we thought these things smelled bad on the outside. You know, one of the, one of the little discussed issues surrounding climate change is the fate of hockey. I thought you were going to say the fate of Hoth. Yeah. The fate of Hoth also. Well, I mean, I I can't help but feel that that hockey has contributed in some way to detrimental climate change. The chlorofluorocarbons emitted from uh, rink air conditioning systems, and I'm sure that the Zamboni fumes have not helped the uh, erosion of icebergs and such as well. I think it's all hockey's fault. We can blame Batman for that, too. Absolutely. When you said chlorofluorocarbons emitted from, I thought you were definitely going to say Ron Duguay's hair. But okay, we, we go on. <laughs> um, so, Greg, there's not much argument that the hockey playoffs are one of the greatest creations by Lord Stanley or God or whatever you believe in. But this year they've really futzed with them. And I know you are not pleased with the futzing. Can you describe the futzing and what displeases you about it? Okay, so there was massive realignment in the National Hockey League, and along with that, they've gone back to four divisions, down from six. Along with that is a new playoff format, and it's a little confusing. Like, the top three teams from each division qualify, and then there are two wildcard teams, but you can have both of those wildcard teams be from the same division. So, in other words, you can have two teams... From the same division, both the division champions in the playoffs because one team will play over in the other division. It's as confusing as it sounds. But <laughs> the, real, the real rub on this thing is the inequity of it, which is that if you're the Boston Bruins and you have the best record in hockey, you don't get the benefit of playing a lower, the lowest-seeded team still alive in the second round you are now in a bracket. You are forced to play what we assume will be the Montreal Canadiens if they make it through in the second round, meaning that if Pittsburgh holds serve, they win their series in the, the Metropolitan Division, they will have an easier opponent than the team with the best record in hockey, Boston. And so there's a bit of an equity in there just so the NHL can get its, its March Madness-style bracket. Yeah, and if someone is saying, well, brackets uh, occur in all other sports, it does extremely cheap in an already cheap regular season. I mean, there is almost, there is not, I should say not almost, but there is extremely little to play for in the regular season other than if you're a good hockey team, why not play up to your potential? Yeah, exactly. And, and, you know, the whole impetus for this change, according to the NHL, was to stress divisional rivalries. And they got three out of four. I mean, Rangers, Flyers, Kings and Sharks, Blackhawks, Blues in the first round, those are all blockbuster traditional rivalry series. So they forced those through, and it worked. But the inequity of, of what happens to the higher seeds is a problem. And, you know, the ultimate gambit here, obviously, is to try to create a bracket 
so the casual American fan that spends billions of dollars gambling on college basketball will come around and, and maybe create that two-month-long office pool for the Stanley Cup playoffs, you know, several years down the road. So it's trying to change the behavior of casual American sports fans to better understand the Stanley Cup playoffs by having this bracket at the beginning of the, of the tournament so you can see where these teams are all going to end up. Now, Boston is playing the Detroit Red Wings in the first round. The Detroit Red Wings for years had been in the Western Conference. You think of Boston and Detroit as natural rivals because they are original six teams in the NHL, but they haven't played in the playoffs since like 1787. <laughs> <laughs> this is true. It was everybody wearing a powdered wig uh, and no helmets. It was fantastic. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's been a while, and, and, and I mean, the other interesting aspect of that matchup between Detroit and Boston is, you know, Detroit is still obviously one of the better franchises in the NHL, making the playoffs for the 23rd consecutive season, but it's probably the first time in my memory where they've been the distinct underdog in a series, and, and seeing how Mike Babcock, who I consider the best coach in hockey, handles his team being the underdog in a series has been kind of fascinating to watch. It's been a, a good chess match between these two teams so far. Well, what the NHL doesn't seem to trust or understand is that any teams playing each other in the Stanley Cup playoffs is automatically fascinating and interesting just because that's the nature of the NHL playoffs. I mean, we've seen that with Columbus and Pittsburgh, the Blue Jackets have been around since 2000, 2001. They just won their first playoff game ever. And, you know, no matter who that was against, it's more exciting, I think, because it's against Pittsburgh and everyone loves rooting against Sidney Crosby if uh, you're in Columbus. But it doesn't matter who, who that was against. That's just a fun, exciting thing. Oh, I will respectfully disagree with that because Pittsburgh is as close to a natural geographic rival as Columbus can get. It's one of the reasons why they wanted to move Columbus back over to the Eastern Conference is because to kind of energize that fan base, to really give them, you know, rooting interest, get the casual fan in Columbus interested, you needed to develop a rivalry with somebody. And, and when Pittsburgh plays in Columbus, their fans invade the arena. It's, it's you know, there are more Penguins fans in some of those games than there are Blue Jackets fans. So, to draw that team in the first round to get the first win in franchise history against them and potentially eliminate them in the opening round of the playoffs, it would be like a just shock to the system of fandom in Columbus for hockey. It would almost be like the moment when this franchise actually starts playing in the National Hockey League. That's how important <laughs> it would be. You know, you, earlier you made that joke about the powdered wigs and the three-cornered hats, but that actually is Columbus's marketing plan. <laughs> like, they, the Blue Jackets are supposed to be patriots. And if you say, as you say, this is what they need to draw the Columbus fan, like, if Columbus isn't already a, f- a feverish fan base, why does Columbus even have a team? Like, I know that Columbus actually has more people than Cincinnati and as many people as Cleveland, but, like, why? That's the Col- motto of the team. We have more people than Cincinnati. <laughs> And almost as many people as Cleveland. Two other non-hockey cities. But, like, if people aren't clamoring for hockey in Columbus, why is there hockey in Columbus? There is a clamor. There's a dedicated fan base. Yeah, it's a, it's a, po- it's a penguin clamor. It feels like a hockey market. It's yeah. just that they stink. It's, yeah. it, they've not done anything. They haven't won a playoff game until just the other day. So you give them something to root for. I, I have long, long said that you mint National Hockey League fans in the United States 
by living and dying with your team through a playoff run. That's how I became a fan with the Devils in 1988. It's how a lot of people that I know got into the sport is when you you know create this kinship with the team and and this connection with the team. And and every morning you wake up and and you're happiness that day is determined by whether or not your team won the playoffs the previous night. Like, that's how you become a fan, and, and they're getting finally a taste of that. But it's a good hockey market, but the marketing of that team is really an interesting story in the sense that, yes, they are the Blue Jackets, and yes, it is a Civil War reference, but the initial... I think it's a Revolutionary War reference, right? The Revolutionary War, yeah, sorry about that. The initial hook for fans was they had a, a giant mosquito that they called the Blue Jacket. They invented a bug to try to get fans interested in the team. I think they've somewhat gotten off that as, as the big marketing hook, but they invented a bug. Columbus, you caught the hockey bug. Greg, I want to ask you about the inherent unpredictability of the NHL playoffs as a way to come to a, a, a conclusion on who's the best team. So much always seems to, to fall on the hot goaltender. I was reading a piece on 538.com by Neil Payne about how hot goalies are come to be. And the way they come to be is completely random. There's really no predictive ability of a goalie's performance from not only season to season, but from regular season to playoffs. Do you think that that sort of accounts for a greater share of, of, of the random nature of, of the winner in the NHL than in other sports? Well, I would also ask, just anecdotally, do you believe that to be true? Just as a fan watching the game, do you feel like, oh, Marc-Andre Fleury was terrible last year, but that doesn't seem like Penguins fans believe that there's an equal chance that he's going to be awesome, <laughs> awesome this, this year. year. <laughs> There are always mitigating factors, right? Like in Fleury's case, the Penguins went out and hired an assistant coach in Jacques Martin who changed the defensive system the Penguins play. Knowing that Fleury's a liability and creating some extra support for him, uh, and I think that's been a, uh, he's been the direct benefit of that new system. So sometimes it's just sort of adding a few layers of defense in front of these guys that make them better in the playoffs than in previous seasons. But sometimes it's just inexplicable, and it is the great equalizer in playoffs. I mean, we've seen massive upsets before where goalies like Jonas Hiller were going back to Arturis Urbe in the uh, the San Jose Sharks uh, upset bids in the 1990s. Those guys have been the equalizers. Even going back a couple of years when Marty Berdour, a guy who even two years ago people thought was cooked, even more so than now, went on this incredible playoff run where he basically came within two wins of being the playoff MVP and giving the Devils a fourth Stanley Cup on his watch. So and no one predicted that. So it is the great equalizer. It is what makes hockey exciting in the, in the playoffs. And, and it is one of the most random things about the game is which goalie is going to catch fire uh, when the playoffs start after a, a middling regular season. Yeah, the 538 piece was interesting. I thought one of the conclusions is that the way to win is basically to stop the other team from shooting a lot because hockey is so unpredictable, because the puck bounces and deflects, and there's a randomness a factor that's pretty high. Exactly, and, and the great thing about hockey analytics right now, and, and it is a booming field, I mean, teams are getting involved, the media is starting to take interest in things like Corsi and Fenwick, the great thing about it is that there's finally a way to quantify puck possession, and puck possession has been a very simple thing for years. The Detroit Red Wings preached that they won a bunch of cups with it, which is the simple idea that if you have the puck, the other team doesn't. If you have the puck, you're shooting, you're putting it on net, the other team isn't. 
and now there are ways to quantify that. And you're absolutely right. I mean, it, it comes down to puck possession in a lot of these games. And if you watch the metrics and, and, and the way things are going in a lot of the games where one team is dominating, it is because they have the puck more than the other team. It's so simple, but now we finally have a way to, to quantify it. So Nathan McKinnon, 18-year-old for the Avalanche, had an amazing ankle-breaking highlight reel goal and uh, leading them to a lead in their first round A lot of support series. in hockey skates. Really don't break your ankles very often. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, well, that's why it was so amazing that mm-hmm. even though it's there's so much support, Defied there are still broken as well as. ankles. Is this guy um, going to be the next phenom? It is amazing that he's able to do what he's doing at 18. Well, first off, I must have filed my protest at uh, so many people in the hockey world using the term ankle-breaking. You know, we, we, we have our own wonderful colloquialisms. We don't need to borrow the NBAs. I don't want to see anybody posterize anybody. I don't want to see anybody break anybody's ankles. I think I got now. that off Puck Daddy, Greg. Well, I know, and I, and I regret it. And I gave Harrison Mooney a scolding <laughs> for it. But the bigger issue is what is McKinnon and what is he going to be? And it's been really exciting to not only see the way he's played as an 18-year-old, but in general to see the new bell of the ball, the Colorado Avalanche, get into these playoffs and do what we hope they would do, which is have this youthful exuberance carry over into incredibly exciting play. I mean, there's a bunch of kids in that team that they've amassed over the last couple of years in losing that are, you know, have in some cases reached the age of maturity and in the case of McKinnon just burst onto the scene and become a star. And you always like to see new blood in these playoffs. I mean, it's great when the old guard is still there. You do need teams to measure against, like the Penguins and the Bruins. But when you get a team like Colorado and you get a coach like Patrick Waugh into this mix, it's like a shot of adrenaline to the whole process. And, and seeing what McKinnon did in the first two games is exactly that. Could we go back to Marc-Andre Fleury? I kind of think he's the most important guy and has been for a while in the NHL playoffs just because Pittsburgh is a great offense and they should be, you know, a favorite to win the Stanley Cup. And then they have, like, I don't know, by some measures – Goals saved against uh, save percentage. You look at these, I don't know, like one of the worst starting goalies in hockey. Why? <laughs> well, because they pay him a lot of money. Oh, because but he that's was first, so stupid. He was number one pick. And also because he's got a cup. And, and the thing about Fleury is that he was a complete sieve against the Flyers. Uh, he was quite terrible in last year's playoffs as well, where he lost his job to uh, Thomas Bocoon early on in the, in the postseason. But he's sort of just a symptom of the overall disappointment that's been the Pittsburgh Penguins since they won their cup. I mean, the entire team has fallen apart in some of these playoff uh, series. And Sidney Crosby isn't immune to it either. I mean, Sid, right now, I've read in the Pittsburgh Tribune Review today, Sid has one goal in the third period in his last 30 playoff games. And he's never scored an overtime game winner, despite the Penguins being in overtime games a lot during his tenure there. So there's a lot of problems with the Penguins. I think Flurry has been the most evident one in the last couple of years. But this is just a team that overall has, has failed to meet expectations. And frankly, like if Columbus does rise up and, and upset them in the first round, 
this could be the worst year of Dan Bowles' life. Uh, after losing in the Olympics, I think it could cost him his job in Pittsburgh, too, if they get upset. One last quick uh, non-playoff question. What do you think of this uh, orange lookup line that has been proposed by a former player, 24-year-old guy who had two spinal cord injuries, 40-inch orange line that would be painted along the boards to give players a better sense of where they are as they go into the, into the boards? Basically a warning track. Warning track for hockey. Well, it's an interesting thought. I mean, you know, it's it's obviously all part of the grander scheme of player education and trying to make it easier for everybody to not have catastrophic injuries. So, so that's a good thing. I mean, I I'd have to talk to the players to see if that would actually make a difference if they do understand spatially where they are on the ice anyway without a warning track. But it's the kind of thinking in player safety that's prevalent and effective in 2014. The, the NHL, for all of the, the flack they've taken through the years about concussions and for now two lawsuits against them based on the concussion protocols in previous years, I give them all the credit in the world for trying to re-educate players on what these head injuries are, what these brain injuries are, and almost trying to have them relearn how to hit people in some cases through videos and through education and, and through their supplemental discipline. So. The whole thing is trending the right way, and, and the recent three-game suspension to Glenn Seabrook for hitting David Backus in the head is part of that trend. I mean, that, that's a, if you go by the old metric of each playoff game suspended is two regular season games, that's a six-game suspension for Seabrook for that hit for a guy that has no priors. They're coming down hard on guys and, and trying to educate guys, and I think that everything that they can consider is, is, is for player safety is going to be under consideration. I think the orange would look nice on the ice, too. Red line, blue well, line. The one line that they've never put on the ice that I wish they did was the little line behind the goal line in the cage that was supposed to be if the puck touched it, then you know it was completely over the line. But I think the argument was that they didn't want to make it too complicated for people watching the game, so they got rid of that idea. There's a lot of that in the NHL, trying to make sure that people aren't confused by it. That's why we get things like the Atlantic Division that encompasses Tampa Bay and Montreal. Right. So let's look at a replay for nine minutes a game instead of having something that just is the radius of a puck. Sorry, exactly. The exactly. diameter. Yes. All right, Greg. Thanks. We'll uh, talk to you again soon. Enjoy the playoffs, my friend. Anytime, boys. Thanks for having me. Greg Wyshynski is the editor of Yahoo's hockey blog, Puck Daddy. And you can listen to him on Merrick versus Wyshynski, sportsnet.ca, and iTunes are where you can find it. When are they going to start Puck Mommy? That's what I want to know. <laughs> All right, on to our final topic of the day. April 15th, unfortunately, is the anniversary of a pair of very dark days in sports history. Last year, three spectators were killed and more than 250 were injured in the bombing at the finish line of the Boston Marathon. And 25 years ago, on April 15th, 1989, 96 people were killed at Hillsborough Stadium in Sheffield, England, in the opening minutes of the FA Cup semifinal soccer match between Liverpool and Nottingham Forest. The new documentary, Hillsborough, directed by Daniel Gordon and part of ESPN's 30 for 30 series, shows how poor police procedure and inaction at the moment of crisis led scores of fans to die in a human crush. The film also shows disturbingly how the police, politicians, and the press cruelly blamed the victims themselves for their deaths. Let's listen to a clip of the documentary in which Phil uh, Scraton, the author of Hillsborough, the truth and a large presence in the film talks about uh, what he calls the price of Hillsborough. The price of Hillsborough is not 
reducible to 96 people dying. The price of Hillsborough is the price of institutionalized injustice, the appalling treatment by some of the media of the good reputations of innocent people, the cavalier way in which wonderful people were vilified. That's the price of Hillsborough. And that, that comes near the end of this film, and it is really, to me, one of the most riveting moments in the film. They, Scraton is talking while the filmmakers pan over the faces of relatives of the victims and survivors of the disaster at Hillsborough, and it is incredibly moving. And I think the strength of this documentary is the this human portrait of suffering, not only in the instance of what happened at Hillsborough, where the police... And the stadium authorities allowed hundreds and hundreds of people to crowd into what, and we'll should get into how uh, English football stadiums were built in the in the 1980s, into this one area, this fenced-in cage, essentially, the pens, they were called. But beyond that, about the suffering of the families and this just painful fight for what Scraton calls justice over the next 25 years. I didn't really remember just how horrific the tragedy at Hillsborough was, but beyond that, how the relatives of the victims were abused over the next decades as they tried to get some solace and get some justice. Well, talking about the long march of justice here, this film is not being screened in the UK because there's currently an inquest going on about Hillsborough now. 25 years later. And, you know, these families have undertaken various different means over the years to try to get some justice. There's a private prosecution done. Which uh, is something that's really unique to the English legal system. Right. And there have been various reports, some of which have exonerated, I think, wrongly the police and some of which have held them to account. But there's another um, one going on now. This really struck me as a particularly... British tragedy and how much it was infected by class and the way, Mike, in which these fans were kind of viewed as subhuman. This was an era of hooliganism, and there was a lot of concern even during the tragedy itself. As people were being suffocated, there were police lined on the field to keep the Liverpool and Nottingham Forest supporters apart from each other, even as the Liverpool supporters were being crushed to death. As if something was going to happen. There was no evidence at the time that the Nottingham supporters were going to come onto the field and try to get across to the other end where the fans were being crushed. Okay, so you have the classism part and just the fear of hooliganism. And then also the media, um, you had the British tabloids, uh, Rupert Murdoch's son reporting that some of the fans were, you know, peeing on the police that were trying to rescue them, that there were um, looting and robbing from victims. dead bodies, victims. It's just, you know, not true. But this is sort of the justice that the victims, the, the families are seeking is, um, you know, some sort of retribution for, for this horrible, inaccurate allegations. Oh, yeah. I mean, that part was a pure libel. Let me go back 
and just say what an affecting documentary this was. And it worked for a few reasons. One, the craft of it well put together. You know, the story itself is truly gripping. But it's where I am, and I think a lot of American viewers are in relationship to this story and when the story took place. So if you asked me about Hillsborough, I would remember that incident where a large number, and I think everyone in England you know, knows it's 96, 96, remember the 96. I you know, couldn't actually recall the number off the top of my head. I, I knew a large number of football fans have been crushed to death. And if you asked me to do word association with that, I think the first word that would come to mind was something like, well, hooliganism, maybe something like drink. And then uh, talk about, of course, you know, anytime you allow that to happen, there had to have been poor organization. But what this really does is take those first two word associations and just show how that was a huge manipulation. Just demolishes I mean, that was, them. That was an evil. It was an evil perpetuated by the FA, the Football Association, by members of the media. And it really does put into an excellent context that the responsibility for the tragedy really falls to the police and the organizers. And the other thing, when I talked about when it took place, you know, 1989, 25 years ago, it was long ago enough that it's history. And so that we're not immediately familiar with every bit of footage. You know, 9-11, especially if you're older than, you know, 24 years old. Like, I don't think there's too much 9-11 footage that I haven't seen yet. Um, a lot of other tragedies like that. You know, this was 89, so there were a lot of cameras around. People didn't have cell phones, but there were a lot of cameras everywhere. There was tons of footage to choose from. And for a documentarian, you know, that's really, really useful. But it was so far away, and I, as an American, was so far away from it, I probably hadn't seen it before. So of all the 30 for 30s, I think this was the most educational. And it also was the one that most changed my mind about something. And uh, I really give it credit. This was a really good and useful documentary. The only thing I didn't like about the documentary was the use of reenactments. And I think that's a crutch that some filmmakers use. And I didn't find them useful. And sometimes I found them confusing, sort of having actors uh, reenact scenes as the documentarians imagine them. They feel unnecessary to me, especially in chronicling something that is so powerful and so emotional and there is so much contemporaneous footage that is just so arresting that it really does take your breath away. I mean, there were moments watching this when I gasped not only imagining what these people were suffering through, but also at imagining just how inept the officials were who were managing this crisis. I mean, there's the, the documentary talks about the, effectively the chief of police who was in the stadium with a, a eye view of what was happening, and the guy was paralyzed. He couldn't function. They didn't open up alternative gates. They didn't rip down the fences. There were images of you know these fans climbing over the fences with the, the tops curled toward them to prevent pitch invasions of fans being hoisted up to the next deck to get out of the crush. And the documentary does this brilliant sort of forensic job of explaining what happened outside the stadium as fans were coming in. This really terrific deconstruction of the minutes leading up to the start of this game and the suffocation of so many people. So English soccer was a vastly different sport than uh, both as it was played on the field and as it was consumed by fans. And we've had a lot of this transformation in the U.S. as well. But I think it's been even more profound in the U.K. And in large measure, the changes 
came about because of Hillsborough, the recommendation to get rid of these pens, where, as you were saying, Stefan, people were just basically thrown into these pits, standing room only, and there are, you know, walls on either side. Fences. Um, to prevent, you know, fights and to prevent pitch invasions and hooliganism. And those pens were banned henceforth after Hillsborough. And now every Premier League stadium, it's just all seating. Mm-hmm. And that change, in addition, my colleague Jeremy Stahl wrote a piece a couple of years ago about this. In addition to the success of England at the 1990 World Cup, playing a kind of brand of soccer that was, you know, exciting and much more aesthetically pleasing than previous England teams. That's what ushered in kind of big money era of the Premier League and both made the sport more family friendly, you know, games where you could bring your kids and bring everyone and feel safe, but also way more expensive and, you know, less open to a lot of different people in the UK. And so you can date all of that back to Hillsborough, all of those changes. And Hillsborough, it came, I mean, it really was the sort of the, the apotheosis of the, the collapse of English soccer. Attendance was poor. Stadiums were a disaster. Revenues were low. The top English league was far below in ability and attractiveness of Italy and Germany and other continental leagues. So Hillsborough was a catalyst for the, the real professionalization of English soccer. The Premier League didn't start until 1992 three years after Hillsborough, and a lot of people believe that it really was a, a direct outcome of this disaster, this recognition that the sport had to be professionalized. It had to be cleaned up, both in terms of who was going to the games and the atmosphere of the games, but also in terms of how we treat fans once they get to the pitch and how we view them. And that came about because of this suspicion, because the belief that all fans were bad, that they were all drunks, and that they were all hooligans. That permeated the initial investigation into what happened at Hillsborough. The cops took blood samples from the victims, including children, to determine their blood alcohol level. They canvassed which bars fans went to, which bars the victims went to before the games. They grilled survivors about how many drinks they had had. And, and came out and said that the cause was Liverpool fans storming the gates, which wasn't true without tickets, which wasn't true, and having been drunk and that contributing to the push forward and the crush, which wasn't true. You know, a very strange thing and an interesting thing and a horrible thing about this particular tragedy. When we speak of man-made tragedies, we usually mean that man was not up to repelling the forces of nature, right? So Katrina was a man-made tragedy in, I think, the correct estimation because of mistakes that were made by planners and the levees and so forth, or Fukushima or uh, uh, a nuclear meltdown is a man-made tragedy because, you know, man is the one who builds these machines. But this is a man-made tragedy because the actual agents of homicide, right? The vectors of killing were your fellow man. It was people crushing people. And it's this crazy thing where if some people had made a different decision, and that's the same throughout tragedies, but if people had made a different decision, or if at any point kind of everyone said, and I don't know how they would, let's all stand still, let's all slowly back up, then there wouldn't be this man-made tragedy. When you think about that and you think about the death toll, I mean, 96, this was more than the number of people who were killed in Norway. This is more than things like the Happy Land uh, social fire in New York. Like, 
huge, huge death tolls just based on idiocy, poor planning, and they lay it out pretty well, and then the lies to cover it up. There was very little sports in this documentary. I mean, just as there was only six minutes, six minutes in of the soccer. actual... Yeah, there's only six minutes of soccer in the actual game that was played. And at no point were you saying, well, why is this even on ESPN? I mean, it's kind of shot through with the culture of sports, which is things that we talk about all the time, what it means to be a fan and things like that. And, you know, who protects you as a fan? Again, I'll make the point. It's one of the reasons why this is really excellent. I'm glad that you brought up Katrina because that's what I was thinking of when I was watching this for so many reasons, because for many months and years... After it happened, there was not enough blame apportioned out to the you know people who had designed the levees and appreciation of the fact this was a man-made disaster and not just a weather event. There was also blaming of the victims, you know, the reporting about what was going on in the Superdome and Ray Nagin coming on TV and saying that people were raping babies, which is just absurd and not true. And you know, I think anybody who's been affected by a particular tragedy, you'll bring that when you watch this documentary. And the the behavior of responders, whether the federal government in the case of Katrina or the local police and then the investigating authorities in, in Hillsborough. Yeah, and you talk about how there's not um, that much sports in the documentary, but this is clearly still something that resonates in England, particularly with Liverpool supporters who are particularly villainized even as they were the ones who were affected by this. And they um, have... Banded together, it's a part of the club's identity. They're in first place in the Premier League now. And uh, maybe we can listen on the 25th anniversary of this. There was just an incredibly moving scene before a game where they were all singing all the supporters, You'll Never Walk Alone, which is the Liverpool club anthem. And you've really never heard anything like it. There's not anything comparable in American sports where everybody in the entire stadium is singing the song acapella. It's really awesome. And that's why, Josh, when you when you talk about how this is a particularly English story, I think that's where it is, you know, trying to understand just how deeply ingrained the culture of football is in the culture of this country. We don't really have a parallel, you know, that transcends class lines and that is about, you know, every aspect of sport and society that you can imagine. I mean, we we became our sports in America became more commercialized and more established well before they did in England, before the Premier League. And I think that aspect of you know, football's relationship to what it means to be English and what it means to be a part of, of that culture is far more powerful. And therefore, a tragedy like this is far more resonant in terms of what it has to say about the country. Okay, time for Afterballs, and Mike has made a special pleading to the Afterball committee. Mike, uh, plead. I guess if you need a peg, people like pegs in the news business. Uh, you got the hockey playoffs. One of my favorite hockey players, just one of the great names in sports, and not a name that was celebrated enough, I think, during his life, recently retired, Roman Hammerlick. Could we do Roman Hammerlicks? <laughs> we could. And we should What's your Roman Hammerlick? We should we should make it clear that he's still alive. Oh yeah, Roman Hammerlick is with us. He'll never die. The Roman Hammerlick is not an unknown phenomenon in many parts of Europe. <laughs> 
Stefan, what is your Roman Hammerlick? Well, the Boston Marathon is paying out $806,000 in prize money, $150,000 apiece to the winning man and winning woman. So let's recall a time when athletes, in order to compete, were required to be amateurs. In England, from the late 19th century all the way until 1981, that meant not only not competing for prize money in your sport, but never having taken any compensation in any other sport, and also never competing against anyone who had ever competed for money. A Scottish triple jumper named Tom McNabb was banned in the 1950s for life from international competition for accepting five pounds in a local competition when he was a student. He didn't care for the sportocrats who enforced the morally reprehensible rules. These people were of no human quality, McNabb said. We talk about sport dignifying the human condition, but these people did the opposite of this. Every now and then, there'd be someone they didn't particularly like, and they'd be thrown to the wolves. That quotation comes from The Ghost Runner, The Epic Journey of the Man They Couldn't Stop by Bill Jones, which I'm finishing reading now. It's about an Englishman named John Tarrant, who as a teenage boxer in the early 1950s accepted 17 pounds from eight fights. The biggest payout was four pounds. When Tarrant turned to distance running and applied to join a club in Buxton in central England, where he worked as a plumber and later in a quarry, he declared the meager boxing prizes. It was a mistake that would consume his life. Tarrant's application was rejected. He tried again and was rejected again and again and again and again. As a runner, Tarrant was naturally gifted, determined, and powerful. And as he trained harder and wrote more letters, he became increasingly frustrated. Rather than quit, he decided to crash races and run without a bib number. He didn't even finish the first race he crashed, the 1956 Liverpool Marathon. But the media noticed, and within a couple of days, he was a national story. And the Express newspaper dubbed him the Ghost Runner. The media was immediately on his side. Fans along race courses came to be on his side. And fellow runners did Two. At one race, officials tried to physically drag him off the road, but were thwarted by Tarrant's brother, who was riding a motorcycle. For two years, Tarrant was a media darling and a thorn in the breast pockets of the haughty sportocrats, including the legendary Harold Abrahams of Chariots of Fire fame, who finally held his nose and cleared Tarrant on a technicality, allowing him to race officially in Britain. But as Tarrant trained to make the 1960 Olympic team in the marathon, the suit struck back, saying that track guidelines prohibited him from competing internationally. Tarrant was an introvert and loner who rarely befriended fellow runners. He neglected his wife and son for his running. He was self-absorbed and monomaniacal, possessed by his injustices to the exclusion of everyone and everything else. But his story is so Kafka, so Orwell, and so profoundly sad that even though he's a naif and a jerk, you root for him not to be struck with the bouts of mid-race diarrhea that plagued him in almost every race. When his feudal Olympic dream died, Tarrant moved on to ultramarathoning, 40 miles, 56, 100, fled England for South Africa, raced for himself, raced to set world records, raced to stick it to the hypocritical jackasses upholding the aristocratic ideal that competition should be the only reward in sport. Tarrant died of stomach cancer in 1975 at age 42. There's a street named for him in Hereford, England, where he lived and trained, and there have been intermittent efforts to name a track and build a statue for him. In September, entrants in the Herefordshire Running Festival will compete for the John Tarrant Marathon Cup. Let's hope there is some cash to go along with that prize. The book is The Ghost Runner by Bill Jones. It's a terrific read. I recommend it. All right, Mike, what is your Roman Hammerlick? God, I love the Roman Hammerlick. Depending on how you spell it or consider it, there's so many ways you could go with the Roman ha- Hammerlick. Roman, Roman, 
Room. All right. Yeah. Hammerlick. Okay. Billy Hamilton. He's fast. Did you know that? Yeah, he's really fast. He has seven stolen bases as I talk on Monday. Pew, eight, pew, nine. But the other thing that about Billy Hamilton is as fast as he is and as good as he is at stealing bases, not so good at the part of getting on base. In fact, he has a uh, 213 batting average and an on-base percentage of 250. He does have seven stolen bases, though, against 13 hits on the season. He's also walked three times. So he's on a pace to like get uh, over 60 stolen bases, let's say. Who are the guys who have gotten that many stolen bases and have just really struggled getting on base or getting hits? And I came across some, I think, interesting stats. The lowest on-base percentage of anyone who's ever had 60 or more stolen bases is Omar Moreno, who literally had 60 stolen bases in 1982 with an on-base percentage of 292. 292, are you kidding me? But then, just two slots better uh, on the list of guys with 60 stolen bases since 1920, Vince Coleman, in 1986, when he stole 107 stolen bases, oh my God, had an on-base percentage of 301. He had a batting average of 232. Vince Coleman stole 107 stolen bases against 139 hits. Oh my God. And so uh, it looks right now that Hamilton, more than 50% of his hits will result in at least one stolen base. So what about that? The guys with the fewest hits on the 60 stolen base club, you get this amazing fact. In 1981, Tim Raines stole 71 bases against 95 hits. 95 hits and 71 stolen bases. Of course, Tim Raines walked a little bit, had 45 bases on balls. The guys with the fewest number of bases on balls, Jose Reyes, had only 27 bases on balls when he had 60 stolen bases. And Willie Wilson, who is a very interesting player, and I think it's true that he had the most base hits in the 80s. Willie Wilson had 230 base hits, and that's really impressive. But in getting his 79 stolen bases in 1980 was aided by only 28 bases on balls. And then in 1979, he walked 28 times and yet had 83 stolen bases. Slap hitter Willie Wilson doing it for your Kansas City Royals. We used to call Omar Moreno Omar the outmaker. But when he didn't, he would get a stolen base. Correct. We used to call him our Roman Hammerlick. (laughs) Josh, what's your Roman Hammerlick? The Kentucky Derby is coming up in a couple weeks, so you still have time to get your betting slips in. You can bet on whatever horse you want to win, place, or show, naturally. But if you really want to clean up, then you'll take a shot at the pick six. And horse racing, the pick six is a bet that requires you to pick the winners of six consecutive races. That is very difficult to do. Andrew Beyer in 2013 wrote, Big jackpots in the pick six stir more excitement than almost anything else in American racing. He added that there's rarely been sustained drama quite like the mania at Gulfstream Park, where the Rainbow Six has thwarted betters for more than a month. He wrote that last year. Uh, He called it a devilish mutant of the conventional pick six. Uh, He noted that the jackpot was around $1,400,000. Well, if it was a devilish mutant in 2013, consider what it is in 2014, where if you buy a 20-cent pick six ticket for the Gulfstream Park Rainbow Six, and you're the only winner of the jackpot, you'll now win more than $5 million. Uh, so why is the Rainbow Six a mutant? Why is it an abomination? Bayer explains that the Rainbow Six differs from the usual pick six in two ways. As always, if you uh, select the six winners, then you win. Um, but generally, 
in the pick six, if you uh, get all of them right, then you share the jackpot with everybody else who gets it right. In the mutant abomination rainbow pick six, if you get it right, but somebody else gets it right, nobody wins. So everything just goes back into the jackpot. Seven is making a face. He doesn't understand this mutant, this abomination. The other difference, as Bayer notes, is that the usual pick six ticket will cost you like two bucks or something. The rainbow six, as of 2013, it cost you 10 cents. And <laughs> in 2014, it costs you 20 cents. And so then- Some serious inflation. Well, you get people spending just an absurd amount of money on these tickets. So uh, last year, somebody won uh, $3.5 million on a uh, single pick six ticket. Their uh, ticket was purchased for $3,118.50. So uh, that means that they had a shitload of combinations. If there's a Rainbow Six pool, for example, for $500,000, that means uh, that people are playing 5 million different combinations. So you can understand why it would be impossible to win this bet. Because if people are playing 5 million possible combinations, every plausible combo is going to be in there. So the only way to win is if you pick something completely outlandish, just like pick every underdog in all six races and nobody under horse and and nobody else picks it, but somebody else will probably have picked it. So the only time that you can win this rainbow six is on the last day of the year when it's an automatic payout. In that case, then everybody who has the right six uh, horse combo wins. But then everybody bets on that last day because they know it's an automatic payout. And so uh, Andrew Byer is saying, you know, given that everybody is going to play, there's going to be a huge amount of money bet. The jackpot's only going to be like four figures or something just because so many different people are going to split it. The Rainbow Six, it's diabolical. It's evil. It's a mutant. It's an abomination. And that's even before I mentioned that in February, somebody was going to win the Rainbow Six on the last race. Their horse came in. It was going to be more than a million dollars, $1.6 million. But then that 15 to 1 shot, Colinito, was disqualified for impeding the progress of the second place finisher. So somebody had one point, an anonymous better, had $1.6 million snatched away from them. Buyer says that there's a lot of speculation that this was just done because they wanted to keep the jackpot going, keep it going for publicity, that this really shouldn't be a disqualification. Buyer says the DQ was in fact, warranted that they got it right. Sounds like a rainbow fix to me. It could be a rainbow fix, Stefan. I don't even even understand how the laws allow that. Like two people who get it right can't both win. Doesn't that just, I mean, I guess horse- (laughs) It's special special rainbow law. It's a rainbow law. I guess, but shouldn't it all only be like some huge collaboration? You should bet through one guy, right? Every gambler should- arrange themselves in a form of a syndicate and then you just have one person presenting the ticket and then you could all split your winnings. Yeah, but the bet is open to the public so it's not all just gambling well, the public, The public needs to organize themselves <laughs> in opposition to the track, quite clearly. Rainbow, organize. All right, you're Roy, I'm G, you're Biv. All right, we'd love your feedback when we talked about today. You can email us at hangupatslate.com. Pesca's going to figure this out before we get through the credits. She's not the bad one, by the way. I mean, G is green. (laughs) Biv has the indigo in it. I'd rather be G than Biv. Anyway, that's next week. We'll gather links to the stories we discussed at slate.com slash hangup. Subscribe to Hangup and listen in the iTunes. Find us by going to itunes.com slash slate podcasts. Leave us a comment. Leave us a rating. 
Become a fan of Hang Up and Listen on Facebook, facebook.com slash hang up and listen. Our intern is Casey Butterly. Producer is Mike Volo. The executive producer of Slate's podcast is Andy Bowers. Remember Zelmo. Beatty. That's Zelmo. And thanks for listening. Don't remember other Zelmos. Lucky Land Casino. Asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.